Today's episode of the BS Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, our 2018 presenting sponsor and your own personal scouting department. ZipRecruiter uses its powerful technology to distribute your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, then identifies the right people with the right experience, matches them, invites them to apply to your job. It's like having Bill Belichick scouting talent for you. The Bill Belichick from a few years ago, not the one who couldn't give us a good defense. Anyway, my listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Also, a State Farm agent has the knowledge and experience to anticipate your needs. And with State Farm, you get more than just an agent. You get a teammate that gets what matters most to you. So go to statefarm.com to get an agent that gets you. Should also mention Cousin Sal against all odds. Football season might be over, but Cousin Sal and the degenerate trifecta are heating up. They're betting on the Winter Olympics. They're betting on college basketball. They're relying on people like Tate Frazier. They're relying on uh, on some of our uh, Oscars people like Sean Fennessy for Oscars gambling picks. All that stuff is on the Against All Odds podcast. Football ends. The podcast gets better, weirder, stranger. Remember, there's always stuff to gamble on. Also, House of Carbs, our old friend Joe House, who refuses to come on this podcast now. He's too big for it. But uh, House of Carbs... Had Eric ride home last week talking about what life is like being gluten-free. And then this week, Adam Rappaport, little Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to everybody out there, by the way. Adam Rappaport talking about Valentine's Day food and ideas on that front. Check that out. Subscribe to House of Carbs. Don't forget about TheRinger.com. We are covering NBA All-Star Weekend videos, social, podcasts, all kinds of stuff. And then the Winter Olympics, which our staff surprisingly likes. Roger Sherman has kind of thrown himself into that. He's been writing a lot of Winter Olympic stuff. I don't know if you've been watching. I find myself repeatedly getting sucked in. Check that out, theringer.com. Coming up, Scooter Braun. We've circled each other for a while. I think he's done other podcasts. He's never done one like this. Long, wide-ranging conversation about basketball, music, some of the stars he's worked with, whole bunch of stuff. There's no way you will not enjoy this one. First, Pearl Jam. Scooter Braun in the house. Bring your staff. Very excited for this podcast. <laughs> I'm excited too. I don't know where it's going. Yeah, we have Um, no no clue where this is going to go. This is going to be fun. How's he sound? All right. Good. Yeah, the sitting positions are always interesting. You're like you're like very the laid back position. Yeah. Uh, Basketball. Let's start there. What do I need to know about you in basketball? Um, I thought basketball was going to be my whole life growing up. My dad is a coach high school in AAU. Uh, I played AAU. um, uh, Played for the state team. Uh, went to play D3 and broke my dad's heart because I wanted to start as a freshman, not sit the bench. Um, didn't last long in college anyway because I started my business. I was going to say, you lasted like a year in college, right? Yes, because my best friend is uh, Jay Williams, played at Duke. And I was seeing Jay on the cover of Sports Illustrated and no one cared about our games. Um, so I was like, I don't know if I want to play. Um, and I started business and one thing led to another, but what college was it? I forget. Emory. Yep. And, and then I, uh, 
yeah, I've always just loved the game. My brothers all played D1. I had two brothers who played at Brown. I had another brother who played at Georgetown and then transferred and led American uh, University to the NCAA tournament. Um, so you're like the failure of the family to your dad. Yeah, pretty much. I was uh, <laughs> I was the bum. I'm the shortest, uh, probably least athletic, and the oldest of four boys and a girl. And uh, my sister was a D1 lacrosse player. Um, and uh, But I got the best jump shot in the family. Oh, by there you far. Go. By far. So, no so you were that else. kid in college who you showed up and you're immediately like, like trying to make money from parties and t-shirts and you were that kid. I, I was that kid only because I didn't like being broke. Yeah. I had never been to a nightclub when I got to college and I just saw an opportunity to make some money because everyone in my school had credit cards and my dad was like, well, I was broke in school. So now you're broke in school. And, um, so what was like the breakthrough? What was the first, the first thing, first thing you did that was like, Oh shit, I can make money from this fake IDs. Yeah. It was uh, a buddy of mine was selling fake IDs. (laughs) What year is this? This is my freshman year. So it was, uh, beginning of 2000, I get to school 2001 and he's making amazing New York fake IDs, but he's horrible at marketing and selling them. He's selling them, but he's going to get caught. Yeah. And I was like, all right, we're going to switch this up. You know, I'm going to be a part of this. And I laid out a whole plan how we would fly into state schools under false names on the weekends, sell as much as we could using AirTran X fares for $50 flights, and then leave before anyone realized we were. And that was the rule. Never keep in touch with anyone. And then he kept in touch with some people. So I bailed. And sure enough, he got caught four months later. Um, and, and that then, was like, a, wasn't that like a felony? Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm going to deny everything. <laughs> okay. This no, is, uh, it's like, that was like pretty illegal back then. Now uh, the ideas are too good. Yeah, I don't yeah, think you I, can fake them. I have no idea. I mean, I probably made up that entire story just now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then and then I was walking by this nightclub and I said to the guy, if I bring some people here next week, would you give me some money? And uh, he was like, yeah, sure. How many people? I was like, well, how many people do you hold? And he said, 800. I was like, cool, I'll do that. And he looked at me like I was crazy. I went to Kinko's. I made flyers. I called it Kryptonite Entertainment because I was a Superman fan. And um, oh, so you created a fake company, a fake company, the whole thing, Kryptonite Entertainment, and you know everything else. And then you know within six months, I was the largest college party promoter in the country, revenue wise. <laughs> and um, and the rest is kind of history. I Did you have to hire a staff, or were you? Just I had just a, a bunch of freshman girls passing out flyers for me that I was friends with because I had a high school sweetheart. So I was friends with all these girls. I wasn't threatening to them. Yeah. And uh, I was like, hey, can you pass these out for me? And I'll give you free drinks and free access for you and your girls. And when you get all the freshman girls coming, the whole school comes. And uh, I started learning to promote. And I met this guy, Jason Weaver. At my first party, he was an actor. And he said, do you want to see how the other half lives? And I said, what does that mean? And he goes, black people. And in Atlanta at the time, white people went to techno clubs. Yeah. And black people went to hip hop clubs. And I didn't like techno at that time. Um, so he and I went and I was very comfortable being a minority. I was a minority on my AU basketball team my whole life. Yeah. So um, we went in and this promoter named Alex Gidewan, who's still the biggest club owner now in Los Angeles, I mean, uh, in Atlanta. Yeah, he was the biggest promoter um, within the black community. And Alex kind of took me in and taught me the ropes of promoting. And that was how I learned how to run a cut line and how to do different things. When I came back to New York, this guy, Mark Baker, was opening Lotus in New York City. And he took me under his wing and taught me how to, you know, build that type of brand. Um, And uh, that's how I became a big promoter. But I just hated the stigma of it. I didn't want to be a guy someday who had kids and had to go to a nightclub. And, um, you know, I met Jermaine Dupri along the way. And he said, 
you know, why don't you come learn this over here? I became the vice president at Sosa Def. I was 20 years old. Um, the first artist I ever worked was Ludacris. Throw them bows at my parties. So I was kind of, I was like the white boy of Atlanta at a time when Atlanta was on the rise. And it was, uh, it was great. And a lot of these guys, we came up together. I knew, I knew Jeezy when he was an actual drug dealer. Uh, before he was rapping, we, we were friends. Yeah. <laughs> he would come to my parties. Um, but, uh, but yeah, to kind of, it's funny we're doing the podcast today because last night I, I was looking at this picture of my family and I just had this surreal moment of like, how the hell did I get here? Yeah. And kind of reflecting on it all and uh, just very lucky and blessed. So you went to, when you went to college, were you just like, I'm going to take some classes and play basketball and yeah, I just I didn't, none of that other stuff even occurred to you. No, I didn't know anything but basketball. Yeah. I mean, I was that kid who I just played basketball and went to house parties with my girlfriend. And I didn't know anything else. I know I wanted to do a lot more. And that's why I chose Atlanta and Emory, because I wanted to go far away from where I was from, where no one knew me. And I wanted a city and I wanted to build something. Yeah. Um, but and you, and you basketball get- was kind of like my whole life until that point. So I didn't really know what the plan was when I got there. So a little luck there too, because you got to Atlanta right as this whole music scene is yeah, kind of turning into its own entity. Yeah. I mean, I think anybody who's successful and says that they created their own luck is an asshole. Yeah. Um, I think if you're born in the United States now, you already won the lottery. You're not born in a third world country. You're not born into a situation that's rough. Like you already won, you know, geographic luck. Yeah. You know, and then if you're born... You know, in the circumstances I were, was where each generation things were getting better, um, that already makes me incredibly lucky. And then being in Atlanta, I read a book about David Geffen um, called The Operator, which changed my life. And in the book, he said uh, he wanted to be in entertainment, but movies took years, TV took years, and a song could change your life in a night. And um, that made me look at kind of my surroundings in Atlanta. It was like, okay, I'm going to do this music thing because it's it's here. Yeah. And uh, that's happening. Yeah, and it was happening. And, you know, it was uh, when I joined Jermaine, the first thing I worked on was the Young Bloods, and then Anthony Hamilton and Jay Kwan. And uh, if you look closely, I'm in the ludicrous stand-up video. Um, really? Yeah, I'm the club promoter in it, dancing around with the big girl. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, But, you know, it was we all came up together and it was fun and we were all young and exciting. And, you know, you were going into neighborhoods. I, I went into Bankhead and my buddy said, go check out this group. It was called the shop boys. And I wasn't a fan of the group, but I connected them with this producer. I was friends with the name Pitt that I was managing at the time. And we made a song called party like a rock star and it became the number one ringtone. And it was just like a wild time. Um, Any strip joints with Gucci or no? No, but uh, funny, Gucci doesn't know this, but he had a guy working with him years and years ago. This is before Coach K, before, and I had a little studio in Atlanta and he came to use it and they didn't pay. Oh, come on, Gucci. Yeah, literally they owed me like $6,000 and it was like, I couldn't afford to not have $6,000 back then. And like his guys just weren't paying and I had to like figure out how to get paid by these guys. And they're like, oh, it's Gucci's got it, you know, and and they didn't pay. And I, I literally... To this day, I remember they were the only bill that never got paid. And before I had the relationships that like people would pay me because you had to, you know, let people know you couldn't be fucked with in Atlanta at that time. 
but uh, but Gucci was. So you had people killed. No, I didn't have people oh, killed, but I'm sorry. he was one of those guys that I just didn't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, sure, whatever. Yeah, keep the sixth grade, Gucci. Yeah, but it, it was. I actually put it on uh, the, my buddy who booked it. This manager I had for the studio. I was like, you need to figure this out, or it's it's on you. It was kind of like I always ran things like I saw in the mafia movies. Yeah, where if someone didn't pay money owed, the person who took responsibility had to carry that weight. Right. And that was like everything I saw in the mob movies. Like, you vouched, you pay. (laughs) (laughs) And meanwhile, I was just like a kid trying to figure it out, like watching these movies. (laughs) What was, how many years between the Atlanta scene taking off and America realizing that the Atlanta scene was taking off the rest of the country? Um, Was it it like nine months, a year, six months? Look, it was pretty quick. I think for me, it was like, it was taking off. I was 19 when I got there and we started doing that. And then at like 2021, I started traveling first time, like coming out to LA and everything. And everywhere I went, New York and LA, all the clubs, all they did was play our music. Yeah. So you knew. So it was about two years before it really came together. But it wasn't because of one artist. It was because of everything that was going, happening in Atlanta in that community. Everyone was kind of supporting each other. Everyone was collaborating. You know, Welcome to Atlanta with Jermaine is a great example of what was taking place there because- the actual original one was just all these artists in Atlanta coming together. Um, and it was, it was just a Mecca. It was a hub. And uh, it was a great place for a young guy who's entrepreneurial to be because Atlanta gave me everything. So you figured out quickly club promoter. I can make a lot of money, but I'm up till four in the morning, four nights a week and I'll be burned out in 10 years. And that's not a great long-term path for me. I won't, I don't want to say, I don't want to speak badly on anybody, but there was a promoter I got to know really well and everybody was admiring his life because he drove a really nice car and he had yeah. a young girlfriend and it, and I would rather be my father than him all day long. Yeah. And my father was my hero. So, you know, I didn't want that life because it wasn't the life I aspired to. Like I remember my it's a dad, fun life when you're 26, but not when you're like It wasn't even fun at 26. It wasn't like I was doing it at 20. You got to understand if If you were to talk to Ludacris and his manager, Shaka, or, or actually uh, DJ Irie, who's the official DJ of the Miami Heat. Yeah. The way he and I met was I was doing the Ludacris Eminem after party for Ludacris after the uh, the tour that he was on with, with Eminem in Miami. He's the biggest, you know, DJ in Miami. And he comes to the door of Mansion, I think it was at the time. And I'm not letting him in because I'm like, you're on the guest list, but you only have three and you're here with eight people. And he's like, do you know who I am? I was like, I don't care. And he went on the radio the next day to talk shit about this kid. (laughs) By the way, it was a 21 and up club. I was 20. (laughs) Like, so it was just a weird existence. Yeah. What 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 was your big break to like officially become a guy in music? Jermaine. I mean, really was ludicrous. Ludicrous and Shaka put me in the music business and that party made a name for myself because I got Showtime um, through a friend to sponsor it. And at the time, corporations weren't sponsoring rappers. Um, you know, Jay-Z hadn't done the Nike shoe yet. Like, it wasn't happening. And uh, so that kind of gave me a little bit of a name. But it was Jermaine. Jermaine Dupree um, asked me to go out one night and meet him in Atlanta. And he took me to the bottom of this place called Dragonfly Lounge. He was doing his best friend's birthday upstairs, Eddie Skeeter Rock Weathers. Mm. And uh, we went downstairs and I'll never forget the meeting because we, we sat on these tall kind of bar stools and Jermaine is um, not the tallest man. And while he was giving me this speech, 
his feet were dangling. <laughs> and I was so fascinated with how short he was that his feet could dangle from these benches. Um, but he said to me, you're never going to get to mansions throwing parties. And I was like, well, I'm actually doing pretty well. But, <laughs> but um, <coughs> and he said, you're never going to get to mansions throwing parties. And um, why don't you come work with me? And within six months, I was the vice president at Sosadef Records running marketing. And uh, Did you have people being like, what the fuck does this kid know? He was in college for a year and he's 21. Well, no, because I was running a pretty big business in Atlanta at the time. Yeah. Like I, okay. I was, I was, you know, running. So we you had were, nothing to prove at that point. I, I was making a lot more money throwing parties than what Jermaine was paying me. Yeah. Um, so no one was really questioning it. And I was like his whiz kid. You know, I was this young kid and, you know, I started developing things pretty fast and became one of the biggest earners in the company pretty quickly. What are you wearing at this point? What, what's your what's your attire? Um, pretty much the same thing, jeans and a t-shirt. I mean, part of the conversation was Jermaine's like, I'm gonna have you dressed in different, I'm gonna have you full hip hop. You're gonna be sagging those pants a little bit lower. And I, and I literally looked at him and I said, no, you're not because hip hop is expression and this is exactly who I am. Yeah. And I'm not changing for anybody. The only difference between what I wear now and what I wear then probably is I had a giant puffy so-so def jacket that said scooter. And I used to rock that everywhere because I was proud. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was, he gave me an opportunity and took me out of Atlanta. You know, now we were flying to LA and, and I was watching Usher make confessions and we're flying to Europe and, you know, I'm, I'm seeing the world in a way I never saw before making relationships that I never had before. And that's why I say all the time, Jermaine Dupree and Steve Rifkind changed my life. You know, Chaka Zulu from Ludacris put me in the game, him, his brother, Jeff. Um, but Jermaine gave me my first big job and Steve Rifkind gave me my first big record deal when no one else would. And you show up at this time in music where it's it's officially transitioning from bands and solo artists to just solo artists. And you think about like, the 2000 to 2005 range was the last time we really like created new bands. You know, you had like Coldplay, The Strokes, The Killers, uh, Kings of Leon. That now was kind of the last generation. And now they're coming back. And now they're now it's like the nostalgia of that era is now becoming a yeah, thing it's again. Yeah, Greta Van Fleet, the Spencer but, but, Lee band. Like you're starting to see bands really come back in a big way now. New bands or yeah, the these are brand band? new bands. That oh, are so like, you think bands are coming back? Yeah, I hope so. No, they are. They're, I'm really bored. Reverend Fleet is like blowing them. up and Spencer Lee Band is blowing up. And like th these are these are new bands that are making incredible records that people are really excited about that really throw back, that feel new, but definitely play off classic rock. Yeah. And, okay. And people are excited in their live instrumentation, everything else. Like music is cyclical. You know, music. I hope you're right, because I was worried that bands had played every variation of a band no, song. No, it, it, it's all, no, it always works go. like that. Why do we have new boy bands, every, you know, every couple generations? Because they're so handsome. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you not in a boy band is the real question. <laughs> I, I really wanted it. Nobody uh, ever asked me. I yeah, I mean, I heard you got moves. Yeah, um, I was ready. But it, it's, you definitely heard Rock It goes in circles, and I think, you know, that will happen. But also at that time, um, Maroon 5 was coming out because I remember Jermaine was obsessed because Maroon 5 was really using like break beats. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think music goes in these cycles and I think we're going into a cycle where we're going to see a resurgence of, uh, of bands. In the Defiant Ones, there's this, this part when Jimmy Iovine, when he hears the chronic and the chronic is just bombing left and right with every person they bring it to and nobody gets it. 
and he listens to it and he's so impressed by the production. That's why he liked it. It wasn't even the music as much as like, who produced this? And Dr. J's like, I did. It's like, this is amazing. And that's why he liked it. When you listen to music, are you listening to the music part or the production part or like what, what catches your ear first or the person him, himself or herself? Um, the way I hear music is kind of strange. Like I hear each instrument. So, and this, so I try sometimes to kind of shut my brain off and not pay attention to the music so I can feel what someone would feel like if they were just listening in their car. Yeah. Um, the thing that moves me the most is, isn't memorable because I got to think commercially. Yeah. Uh, and then two, um, is there soul? Is there something emotional? Is there feeling when the person sings? Can you, can you grasp, grasp something? And I, I like, I think, uh. Is this why you weep when you hear Sam Smith? He just brings <laughs> But you, you know what's a really, a really good example? Someone asked me to like break that down for them. And I said, if you listen, uh, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, by um, the live version yeah. with George Michael and Elton John. Go listen to the studio version with Elton John. Elton John is singing in the studio. It's very safe. Then go listen to the live version and see, see how he sings after George Michael sings the first verse. And Because the emotion. He gets competitive. He gets competitive and the emotion comes out. And it is a 10 times a better record live than it was in the studio because there was emotion in the voice. And I think that's what moves me the most because I grew up listening to a lot of different music in my parents' house. And I always, that's why I always loved Michael Jackson because Michael- Because he'd cry and sucks. Yeah, I mean, he was just, he was leaving <laughs> it emotional. all. Every single time, I mean, Michael made you believe every damn word. I mean, yeah. he was singing Man in the Mirror and you're like, yeah, I want to change my life. Um, that's that's my favorite Michael Jackson. It's not underrated, but I always feel like it should be in the discussion. And oh yeah, Man of the Mirror is a really an great song. Hundred percent. Yeah, um, I feel the same way. This is going to sound weird, but in the Grammys, Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand sang "You Don't Bring Me Flowers," which is a fine song if you hear it on the radio. But in the Grammys, it's like a moment. And you cried. Like they go out. I didn't cry. You cried. But you go out and you're like, wow, these two are going to start making out. Everyone like remember they have like so much Bill sexual Simmons chemistry. wept while watching <laughs> Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand. What a moment. Those two, they really took each other to a place. But we don't, those, that, those authentic moments are harder and harder to find in music because so much of it is orchestrated. And so much of how people put out albums now, you can kind of see their brain. It's kind of the Taylor Swiftization of putting out albums where you can, they're putting out the album, but you can see all the brain mechanics behind every decision they made before they did it. I think Timberlake just now, JT is the latest example of, puts out the man, what's it called? The man in the woods, man yeah, of the woods. Of, yeah. Puts out the little weird video first. And look, you never really know because there's a lot of different people behind it. Sometimes it's the artist. Sometimes it's the person behind the artist. Sometimes it's someone come up with a random idea. I mean, when we did the Justin Bieber roast, which yeah. was our first thing in bringing him back. Yeah. That was an that was idea. From, that was an idea from an intern in my office. I sat down the whole office and I said, how should I, you know, plan, plan out this thing? And Ava, who now works for me full time, was an intern at the time. And she said, my generation doesn't want to see a sit down interview. We want to see, you know, like a roast. And I said, okay, let's go do a roast. And it, it was 100% her idea. And, you know, I got a lot of credit for it. Justin got credit, but it was really an idea from an intern. And, and I think, uh, well, you know, what really helped him though? He put out a couple of songs that were really smashes. good. Smashes. Good music yeah. heals everything. Guess what? When you put out a good song, then everybody yeah, you can put out sing love and yourself and what do you mean? Win. And where are you now? And you know, I knew he was back. Sorry. My daughter was like, uh, 
When did Sorry come out? How many years ago? Three. Yeah. So my daughter got into that, like maybe fourth grade. Two or three. God, I can't remember. Yeah, whatever. Fourth grade, fifth grade, and just loved that time. I was like, Biebs is back, man. Yep. He's got my nine and a half year old daughter. <laughs> He's good. <laughs> All the sins have washed away. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, I'm just going to check with you in this next album. I'm going to be like, bring her over. We're going to play her some tunes. If she's into it, we're solid. Because that's the way I've always done it. I've always actually gone to fans and like tested it. Guess what? If you put out a song that people like, it heals everything. If JT had a song on that last album that was like, wow, that's a great fucking song. Everybody, that album's fine. Everybody's talking about how good it is. You just need that one. You need the one thing that every once in a while. It's music, it's, people forget it actually is a music business. You know, so they talk about who this person and that person and this person. But great music... It really is all it comes down Rare, to. Yeah, rarely. That's why I think Off the Wall was a better album than Thriller, and this is very controversial Ooh. for people. You want to know why? You want me to go I, there? I mean, I'll listen to it. I'm not going to agree with you, but go You ahead. want me to tell you why you go should? Go ahead. Go ahead. Thriller was an amazing album, but people forget that Michael's first album wasn't Off the Wall. It was called Michael Forever. It had a green cover, him lying in the grass, yeah. and it was a complete flop, and they had to put out another Jackson's album in between because it was such a flop. People forget nobody messed with Michael Jackson. His career was over. wasn't the Jackson 5. Like, no one was thinking Michael Jackson's going to be this big solo artist. Yeah. And then Off the Wall came out, and it was so amazing that everyone lost their minds, and he became Michael Jackson. So that when Thriller came out, he was set up. And I always say the hardest album isn't the album that goes to the next level. It's the one that defines you. It's the the setup album. It's, well, it's the one that carries you over the hump. It's like making the Dude, conference finals and who Justin and- Bieber was hated, but we made purpose and it changed everything. And that's why whatever we do next, I would still say purpose was more important because it, it set everyone up that his next album, everyone assumes, oh, it's going to be a huge smash. But everyone assumed on off the wall and on purpose that both of those guys were done. And when an album transcends you from a place of hatred to love, I think that's the more important album. And that is my pitch. On why I, I messed that's, down. You just that's a NBA thing. Yeah. It's the the season before the season. Hundred percent. Like the Warriors lose game seven in the clips and Steph Curry goes toe to toe with Chris Paul and Clay Thompson is going to another level. And I went to that game and I left that game thinking like, those guys are gonna be special. Like that there's something's gonna happen with that team. But I still think you gotta win a championship. Off the wall was still the championship. It just wasn't well, Thriller was the yeah. chance. Thriller no, was no, the, Off the Wall was a huge... Thriller was 16-0 in the playoffs. Yeah, Listen, off the, off the Wall was a championship without ha- breaking records in games one. Off the Wall had... But the thriller, Thriller's life. like, you know, breaking, you know, breaking the Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan team record for wins and winning the championship. 70, 72 yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, that. that's what Thriller was, <laughs> but it doesn't matter because it was them becoming a team the first season before that made you say, okay. So, yeah, I think it is basketball. Everything relates to basketball. Everything the, relates to basketball. Basketball is life was an actual sign in my house. So it was... Well, uh, even what you said about when you were saying how you can hear an album or a song and you can hear all the different instruments in it, the only thing I can do that with is when I watch a basketball game and I don't even totally have the talent anymore. I used to be able to go to a game and I could see all the different players at the same time and what they were doing. And now, because I don't go to as many games, I'm not. my brain isn't... It yeah, takes a it'll while go for back it to come quickly. back. Go but back I used to be able to sit there and I could be like, I see, I see that guy, I see the yeah, pick you see, coming, you see the down I see screen the center, coming, yeah. And everything that was going on, I could just see it. And people hear music that way, and I'm always jealous of it because I always wish I could hear music that way, but I can't. You want listen? I'll talk basketball all day long. It, you, the highlight of my career isn't a music thing. What is it? It's 
Chris Paul did a podcast on Jesse Williams' podcast. Yeah. And Jesse Williams asked him who in the entertainment business can hoop. And he said, Chris Brown. And he said, do you know Scooter Braun? He has an NBA range jump shot. Wow. And that was the highlight of my career. <laughs> Everything else. I, I literally made my office cut that out of a 45 minute just podcast out a loop and the, just send the- it to me so I could send it out to everyone I know. Cause it was Chris Paul. Literally that That's was amazing. the highlight of future hall of famer saying that I have an NBA level jump shot. And he's right. He's dead on about that. Um, and no one should disagree with him. He's Chris Paul. Uh, <laughs> the uh, Rich Paul has a nice game too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. Have you played with him? Yeah. I haven't played with Rich. We're buddies. We probably should get on the court and see what happens. He's got a good game. I mean, he's, he's short, but it's like, it's effective. He uses, it's like speed and quickness. He's Although, like, he's, he's like Muggsy or can he shoot? Nah, he's a little better than Muggsy. He can shoot. He's I like how you said he's better than a guy who had 14 seasons. <laughs> wow, in <Muggsy>. <laughs> he's better than Muggsy uh, Bogues, who's the starting point guard for the Atlanta Hawks. <laughs> You're right. He's probably not better, but it was a, I guess a more complete offensive game. We were talking about uh, how a good song solves everything. The only time I can remember this not being the case was when Kanye put out Famous, which I thought was one of his best songs that he's ever made. But there was so much of a what circus do you mean? We around just had, it. Hold on, hold on, hold on. That's not true. We had the biggest tour of his entire career. No, I'm saying that song came out yeah. and the hullabaloo of the song overshadowed the song. No, but you know, listen, I for think, me, I think, anyway. with, yeah, I, I, think I just you, love the song. I was like, why, why are I people think, just talking about what a good song this I, is? I think, look, Kanye and his family are, you know, in the limelight in a way that very few people will ever understand. Like, you know, they come over for a movie and there are people like just camped outside my house and like um, paparazzi. Yeah. Just paparazzi, like with weirdos. ladders, like it's weird. And, Jesus. um, but, <laughs> but at the end of the day, he's an absolute creative genius and, I think that that album, uh, Life of Pablo, is the first album that only was released streaming that ever went number one on the Billboard chart. Yeah. And the tour that he did with the Floating Stage, you know, that tour is the biggest tour of his entire career. It's the best show I think I've ever been to as far as the energy and everything else. Um, And Chris Rock came and he was like at the Garden and he was like, I've seen everyone play the Garden. This is the best show I've ever seen. Wow. And... The genius is Kanye. So we're in. Wait, hold on. Let's take a break because I have a lot of Kanye. Okay. All right. Taking a break. Has your company outgrown QuickBooks? Are shared spreadsheets, manual processes, and legacy systems costing you time and money? Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy to use cloud platform. Save time, money, unneeded headaches by managing sales, HR, and finance and accounting instantly right from your desk or even your phone. Thousands of the best known and fastest growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business. Now it's available to you. Don't miss out on unleashing your business's full potential with their free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth. That's what it's called. Learn how to acquire new customers, increase profits, finally get real visibility into your cash flow. Get NetSuite's guide, Crush the five barriers to growth at netsuite.com slash BS. Once again, free netsuite.com slash BS. And since we're here, our friends at Squarespace make it easy to build beautiful websites, whether you're planning to start a business, change careers, or launch a creative project, you should absolutely be tackling your next move 
With Squarespace, widely used by all kinds of people and businesses, Squarespace lets you create an online platform with which you can make your latest goals into a reality. You can even get a unique domain, which strengthens your brand. I know the ringer.com has strengthened my brand and makes it easier for visitors to find you. Whether you need a landing page, beautiful gallery, professional blog, online store, whatever, it's all included in your Squarespace website. Add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse. Nothing to install, patch, upgrade ever. They have an award-winning 24-7 customer support team as well that is ready to help you out. Start a free trial today at squarespace.com. Use offer code BS. You get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Once again, squarespace.com. Use offer code BS for 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Back to my new best friend, Scooter Braun. Coming back. I want to go backwards. When do you meet Kanye? This is Kanye's. I have, a, I have a lot of Kanye thoughts. So I want to, I want to, okay, I'm going to be careful how much him. I say out of respect. Give for me him. the whole history. Uh, Kanye and I met originally on the ludicrous stand-up video. He had just signed to Rockefeller. He was a producer. Wasn't an artist yet. As far as like putting out music. Did he, he know John Legend yet? Um, no. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't think so. And he was at the video and I'm starring in the video and he does a cameo in the video because he's the producer of the song. Uh, and we met on the side kind of talking to each other. And then I did Music Midtown in Atlanta. I consulted for them and I booked all the stages and I booked Kanye and like we hung out there. Uh, and we kind of just saw each other over the years because he had a manager at the time, John Monopoly, who always looked out for me, who like knew me from my parties and just was always a good dude who kind of looked out for me when he didn't need to. Uh, and then years later, Kanye puts out that tweet saying he's $56 million in debt and I'm his friend. So I called him just to say, are you okay? No business, nothing. Uh, and then we started talking and he's like, you should manage me, be part of this team. I said, I don't want to manage you. I just want to be your friend. We've what had year this conversation. are we talking here? This is about two and a half years ago. Okay. Uh, and I said, I don't want to do that. I just want to be your buddy. And uh, literally a week later, I said, when you get back in town in two weeks, we'll sit down and talk and see how I can help you out. But it wasn't like work together. And I get a phone call two days later from Def Jam and from Adidas, both saying, we were told to talk to you that you're Kanye's manager. <laughs> and uh, I call him up and I'm like, dude, what the hell? And he's like, I don't have time to wait. You're it. You're in. And wow. I became his manager from that point on. We started co-managing with Izzy and uh, we've been managing Kanye for two years. So the famous tour was Which I, I mean, I always joke around because he, he will be one of my favorite people forever. Like we're, He's my brother from this point on. Um, and I joke around like I could be with him for 10 years or I could be like done next week and we're back to being friends. Like, Well, my fear is like he just never makes another album. Listen. It's I, conceivable, right? I think that will be up to him. Right. But I'm but, not going to go there. I'm not going to give any hints. That will completely be up to him. I'm not him. saying you have to give hints. I'm just <laughs> saying as somebody who enjoys him, my fear is like he'll never make another album. That'll be it. He'll just do other stuff. And then we'll it'll see. be, yeah, remember when Kanye made music? And yeah, we'll like, see. Oh, yeah, that was great. We'll see. You know, one of the moments I was telling you about this floating stage when I was like, he is an absolute genius. Yeah. So we're doing rehearsals for two days before the show opens in the Midwest. And all we have is a floating stage. Like we talked about doing a B stage where he comes down for a little bit. And right now, all he wants is the floating stage going back and forth and the kind of the spaceship moment. And, um, you know, Izzy and I are talking about we should have a B stage prepared in case he wants to add it a couple shows in, in case like this doesn't carry, you know, for two hours. And 
I see Kanye walk out to the middle of the floor and he takes a phone and he's like looking down and he's shooting pictures and Kanye's not like a selfie guy. Yeah. So I'm like, what is he doing? So I walk over and I ask him and he says, I'm taking selfies to see what the fans will be doing, like what it looks like to make sure it's right because I'm building the show for them. And he knew the culture of where kids are today and what they like and what they do. And he built a show that would be shot by their iPhones better than any other show before it. And he 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 had that innately in his mind, and uh, he was absolutely right. We never needed to be staged. The show was crazy. I mean, we could have gone for two hundred more shows if we didn't have to stop it after you know that tour. But it was. Uh, if you ask me, I don't want to. You know, I love all the shows I'm involved with, but that tour is something that like I wish was still going on so more people could see what would take place night after night. It was crazy. And it was all out of his mind. So you don't think you don't see him touring again anytime soon? No, I think he could tour again. I'm just saying that tour specifically. He'll build something new. But that tour was just the greatest thing I ever saw in my life. So it it was the floor would rock. Like people were moving, jumping up and down in such a rate, like the whole place the crowd was as much part of the show as he was. Yeah. And uh, it was anyone who went, it was like a kinship. Did you go? Yeah. It was like a kinship between us that we were there, that we could yeah. like look at each other and be like, you were there, you experienced that. It's like when you talk to people who went into Burning Man, you know, they right. kind of look at each other like the playa will provide, <laughs> you know, like, like or, or uh, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, they have this kinship that people who don't go to Burning Man do you think have. live music matters as much as it did? Because like yeah. when I was growing up, like let's let's take Bruce Springsteen. He put out an album, you bought it. He came through your town, you either saw him or you didn't. And that was it. Those are my Bruce Springsteen inter- interactions. You might come on the radio. Now yeah. it's like I I can I, I think you tell me about that Kanye thing. I could go on YouTube and watch it right now. Yeah, but now. it's not the same. I think No, I know it's not, but I, I wonder if people I think people know people, that. I think that's I hope why you're right. That's why these shows are selling out. That's why festivals have come back in such a big way. I think people want live experiences because there's so much behind their phone and so much behind their computers that they're desperately trying to break out. And I think that what we saw in our most recent election and we've seen such a divide uh, you know, millennials are more socially conscious than any other generation before. And that's what all the data says. And I think they want to feel and touch and experience each other because they're so upset with what they've been given and what they're being told about the world they're coming into. So I actually think live music is on the rise, not on the fall. Why do you think that um, all the stuff going on in this country hasn't 100% been reflected in the music yet? Because you've seen this in the 70s. Yeah. Look, I'll be honest with you. It's as frustrating to me as probably it is to you. You know, in the seventies, um, it was reflected every single day by you know, everybody. One hundred percent. If you look at the civil rights movement, you think it the was drugs ha- just aren't good enough now? <laughs> I think the drugs might. You know, have what been I think. I think. I think it's because um, artists are very sensitive people. You know, creative people are very sensitive, um, and there's just too many data points with social media. You know, before you could walk in a march. And you felt like you were surrounded by people and you you felt strong in that moment. And now with social media, you know, you have a hundred different opinions hitting you all at once. And for many of them, it's paralyzing. Yeah. Uh, but I think that what we're going to see, and my hope, is that more and more artists are starting to speak out in a way they haven't before. And uh, I think that people are going to realize they want to be on the right side of history. 
and they're going to start using their voices. And I'm hoping the music starts to reflect it as well. It's also because back then radio stations were, were more regional. So you had a lot of PDs, program directors taking risks. Um, and now these companies become huge conglomerates where it's like four people making the decision of what plays on every radio station around the country. Uh, and I think that I don't necessarily know if we're going to see it on radio, but I think we're going to see it in streaming. You know, we're going to see artists breaking through because that's where kids are now finding new music because you're not finding on a radio with four people programming the whole country. Yeah, my generation, you bought albums. I remember eight tracks. I had a couple eight tracks. Mm-hmm. CDs. You, ever, you, should, you, you should give an eight track to your kid and tell them, say, how do you use this? We used to carry these around. Yeah, and just see what your daughter does. Like, I she'll think be I might still have my Hollow Notes H2O eight track. Yeah, you should. Listen. Someone gave a somewhere. cassette tape to their kid. It's on YouTube. It's funny. Yeah, thing cassettes. Ever seen. Forgot about that. And the kids were looking through them, and they were like, "Well, how do you plug it in?" <laughs> like, it? And they were it? they were so confused, and I felt so old. It was very upsetting to me. Well, so then it switches this decade. Now it's like it's almost like the playlist era, and you know, I like Kanye. I have I don't know thirty two songs of my favorite Kanye songs. They're just in a thing. You hit shuffle, and they pop up. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the last person, last people who actually tried to make albums. Now you see like the way they put out that last one where he basically like streamed it out. He's tweaking it after it's mm-hmm. up and he's still- The Life of Pablo is a living album. It. It yeah, a living it was album. a living, breathing that's, album that's what for we said. how many months? Like, is a it while. still going? Is he I mean, still look, if, with if, it? if he wanted to, if he said, call me up tomorrow and said, I want to change a mix and or add a remix or something like that, we would call and make the change. It's a li- That's why it was a life of Pablo. It's living, breathing, changing album. So is that where we're going? Look, I don't, I don't know where we're going. I think I just, what, what happens is you and I get to an age where we're old. Yeah. I'm we, already there, by the way. Okay, You're we, not there yet, but we start, I, am, I think I I'm there. there. I think I'm, I'm there. I'm starting to see percent. with my interns. I'm there. Yeah. I'm, and like, I'm, I might take a break. To you had an A track, so I agree with yeah. you. You're there. I have A tracks. Um, <laughs> I saw Bob Seger in 1980. I'm old. Yeah. It's, I was born in 1981. You yeah. Win. There you go. I'm old. Um, so I, I think what happens is we start to say the criticisms of how we see things. Yeah. And the next generation revolts and shows us. The exact opposite, which happens every single generation. You know, it's uh, everything in my life I've I found has been like a microcosm of something else. It's like when I learned how to promote parties, I can use all those skills in my business now. What I learned on the basketball court, I can use, you know, in my life now. What I see from history, it repeats itself. It's like uh, Credit Scott King said, every generation has to fight the fight all over again. Yeah. I think that's whether it be social activism or the music industry, or it's just every generation has to figure it out for themselves. And usually what a lot of the things that drive them is our criticism of them. You know, and I think... Uh, it's much easier to criticize than it was 35 years ago, but it was still there 35 years ago. 100%. You think, I mean, when like, rock and roll why came, did Michael Jackson have to go crazy? I don't know. It's, yeah, it's. Why do most people who have a ton of success before. You want me to tell you why? At the age of 25. <laughs> yeah, because, is? well, you had, you, you had Bieber. Yeah. Who you're in from the ground floor on. Mm-hmm. And he's. We've turned a around. Massive success at age, what, 16, 17? Yeah. So we, through his entire teenage years, he's the most Googled person on the planet. Yeah, that's not healthy. And now he's going to turn 24 and he's an extremely healthy kid. And. The but, re- but almost wasn't. Almost was. We had two years that were horrible where I would go to sleep at night wondering if he was still going to be there. And I was like trying to find him, but he had a hundred million dollars. He could run away. Yeah. You know, um, look, I think Justin figured out something that we talk about all the time. Um, that is the only reason he did not go crazy. 
And that is that we, I'm going to get like spiritual on you here. But, no, I, let's do it, man. Okay. Uh, I don't think human beings were made to be worshiped. I think we were made to serve. You know, I think we worship something upstairs, whatever it may be. I respect anybody for their beliefs, but there's something bigger than us that can be worshiped. I think as human beings, we're here to serve each other, and that's the only way we can keep our sanity. Hmm. We hear all the time of a Fortune 100 CEO killing themselves, and we're like, oh, I can't believe with everything they had, they would kill themselves. But we're not surprised. But if I was to tell you, hey, there was a volunteer, lifetime volunteer at a soup kitchen who killed themselves, you'd be like, that makes no sense to me. I've never heard of anything like that. Yeah, And it's because people who serve don't go crazy. People who give back don't go crazy. And people who don't, who just take and take and take and are worshiped and are just receiving, they lose their mind because they don't know where to give anything. So I think with celebrity, when you when you live on you know far away by yourself and the whole world is just praising you all the time, you know, Michael was probably at his happiest when he was helping people, but he was so alienated, he probably lost his mind, you know, and he abused himself and all these different things. But I, I can't speak to that. I didn't know him, but I know from my own experience dealing with celebrity at the highest level, Yeah, the only way you survive is if you have an outlet to give. The only way. Success, like real crazy success, I think also has its own demon where you spend your you spend all this time trying to get to where you think you want to go, and that's how it. Mm-hmm. You think about Kanye, how he started. Kanye is probably the all time starting from nothing, doing everything possible to even get his first album. Well, Justin out. too, yeah, Justin. Well, ja- yeah, Justin. Justin lived in the projects with a single mom who had him when he was seventeen years old. Yeah, and no one in his family had ever been on an airplane, let alone left the town. Everyone in his family had substance abuse issues. And the first time I flew him and his mother to Atlanta was the first time she had ever been on an airplane. Wow. You know, so he and I were joking the other day because he took his mom to a private island in the Maldives for vacation. (laughs) And I was like, do you know the first time I brought you to Atlanta when I picked you up, do you know what you were freaking out about? That there was a refrigerator in your hotel room. Right. You know, and there's, there's so many stories in Hollywood or in sports of people coming from nothing to something. Um, but go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted your question. I was just going to say that I think when you spend all this time trying to achieve something and then you actually achieve it, I think most of the time people look around and go, oh, fuck, this didn't make me 100% happy. And that's I had that when, experience. That's when they kind of lose their, their shit. Yeah, I, I had that experience and I got really good advice. What was it? Um, I, when I got to Atlanta and I decided I was going to business, I wanted to be a billionaire. I was like, I'm going to be a billionaire. And then I started- Because you wanted to buy an NBA team. Yeah, actually, it was like, that sounds good. Um, But after probably a month, I realized making five grand was really hard. Yeah. And being a billionaire was not a reasonable thing uh, in my mind. And I met a guy who I had a life I wanted. He had the wife, the kids, the dog, the little whaler boat on Lake Lanier. (laughs) Like, I was like, this dude has it. Like, he's the man. And I went and sat down with him and I said, how much to have your life? Like, how much money do I need to make to be comfortable in this life? And he gave me an extremely high but reasonable number. Like a number I felt like I could achieve. It wasn't close to a billions. It wasn't even hundreds of millions. Yeah. And um, I was like, I'm going to work to my 50s, 60s to get to this number and have this life. And that was my number. I was 20 years old. I set my number, 2021. 
27 years old. I'm driving by Cactus Car Wash in Atlanta, Georgia on Piedmont Road. And my accountant calls me to say something came in, investment, whatever it was, commissions. like, And he says, you know, just want to let you know it came in. Congratulations. And I said, cool, thanks. I hung up the phone and I thought about it. I called him back. I said, how much money do I have? And he said, what do you mean? I said, across all my accounts, how much cash do I have right now after taxes? And he named a number higher than my lifetime number. Oh. I was 27. And and that's when you tried heroin. <laughs> <laughs> what happened was I uh, I kept driving for like a second and then I called my dad. And I tell my dad what I was just told. And it's a strange thing. You're calling your father to say, hi, your 28-7-year-old son is the wealthiest person in the family. Yeah. And, and my dad is like, that's amazing. Oh, my God. And, and I said, but, Dad, here's the problem. I thought when I got here, I'd be happy. And it's not that I was happy or sad. My life just continued driving past Cactus Car Wash. Yeah. And then when it hit me that I'm nothing changed in my emotions, I got incredibly depressed. Yeah. And my dad gave me the best advice in the world. He thought about it. He goes, do me a favor. I want you to hang up the phone. Think about when you were genuinely happy over the last year. And then I want you to call me back. And I was like, what? He's like, just do it. Hung up the phone, pulled over the car, thought about it for a couple minutes, called my dad back. And I was like, okay, it's going to sound crazy. But when I'm just sitting at night, hanging out with my boys, you know, when I'm playing ball, when, um, you know, when, when, you know, you get hot on the court, hit a couple threes in a row. Yeah. I was like, when I go to a children's hospital, when I'm answering somebody randomly back on Facebook and like answering their question. Um, and my dad goes, look, where you are now, you're in a place where you can have success. Success isn't money. Success is freedom to do the things that you actually love. He was like, so implement more of those things into your life and you'll get happiness. And as you get more money, you can implement more and more and more. Yeah. And goes back to what I said before about serving. At the end of the day, I'm happiest when I'm participating with other people. When I take away money, when I take away all these things, like I've had lots of amazing happy moments before I ever made money. And the more moments like that, the happier I am. And what I realize is we get older, we get in this place where we have to provide and we got to go to the job every single day. And that's why we start to get broken down because we're taking more and more time away from what actually makes us happy. And then we get to a place where you make the money and you're continuing in the rat race and you're like, what the hell did I do this for? And I want people to have the perspective that you, you can make a lot of money or not make a lot of money, but that it doesn't define your happiness. Your choice of balance in your life defines your happiness. The choice of how much you want to give to others, the choice of those friends and family you want to spend time with. If you make the conscious decision to do that anyway, I mean... What's the point of making money to go on vacation, you go on vacation to spend quality time with people. You can implement more of that in your life right now. I'm in a fortunate position where I don't ever need to work ever again. Yeah. I'm doing it because I need the challenge. That is part of my happiness. But at the same time, if I don't get home to put my kids to sleep because I decided to stay for a meeting, I'm an asshole. Like I try to get home every night to put my boys to sleep because I know when they go to sleep, I can kiss my wife and say, I got to go do this and I can go back out. But I'm not going to miss those years because the whole point of me doing all this was to have that in the first place. Yeah. We're going to take a break. Hey, for all you guys that love discovering cool-ass new products that you just can't find everywhere, I need to tell you about BespokePost.com. 
Bespoke Post, a subscription club that offers monthly themed boxes curated from unique and upcoming brands around the world. A wide variety of box themes, including style, grooming, cooking, drinking, traveling. They cover all the bases. No commitments once you're assigned your box on the first of each month. You have five days to keep it, switch it, or skip it. Visit bespoke.com, bespokepost.com. So it's B-E-S-P-O-K-E post.com and answer a few short questions that will help you gauge your interest, help them gauge your interest and get a feel for the boxes that vibe with your style. Each subscription box goes for only 45 bucks, but contains more than $70 worth of goods. They sent us some last week and normally I just let the staff take them, but I grabbed the whole bunch of stuff. They had like cool, they had good shaving stuff. I could have given it to Tate. I was like, screw Tate. He can go to hell taking the shaving stuff. I need shaving stuff. Uh, to receive 20% off your first subscription box. I didn't really do that, by the way. I let the staff take it. Go to bespokepost.com and enter promo code BS at checkout. Once again, bespokepost.com. Theme boxes for guys that give a damn. Meanwhile, with over 19,000 State Farm agents nationwide, you can get an agent that gets you, as well as Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid get each other, which is the focus of the Ringer's new NBA Relationships Goals video. Ben Simmons and Joel, Joel Embiid, they have a couple things in common. One, they both sat out their, their first seasons, and Joel even sat out more than that. But they actually, they mesh pretty well together. It's weird. They have an in, both have these weird inside-outside, unconventional games. Simmons is a better passer, Embiid is a better scorer. They just kind of make sense together, and their size makes them really special. No duo in the NBA. I think has a higher upside than Simmons and Embiid, who's at that's under 25. Unless you want to say Giannis and anybody. I would go with Simmons and Embiid though. Check out that video on the ringer.com, the ringer's YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the ringer, the ringer's Facebook or Twitter. And remember, like teammates on the court, a relationship with a State Farm agent sets you up for success. Off the court, go to statefarm.com to get an agent that gets you. Back to my best friend, Scooter Braun. All right, so you've worked with a bunch of like uniquely talented people. Do any of them have a common thread or a common DNA strand or a common something? Or is it each situation is totally different? I mean, uh, there's a lot of things you can compare in their lives because a lot of them are living these really crazy lives. Um, but I think each situation is really different. Yeah. Um, each person is is different. Each uh, personality is different. Each family dynamic is different. You know, even even the age differences in some of them make things very different. Does there have to be a certain level of competitiveness to yeah. get that level? Yeah, I think I think um, you got to be slightly narcissistic to be a superstar. Yeah, you know, I would say more than slightly. You know, it, it's very similar to sports. Yeah. You know, it's like um, I got to meet Michael Jordan for the first time a couple of years back, and he was everything I expected him to be. Like, he wanted to kill me in a conversation, you know? like, And I was like, this dude is the most competitive human being ever. We were talking Duke versus UNC, and he was so aggressive. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and you watch these interviews with Kobe where he was like, I'm not there to be nice to you. I'm there to kill you. And uh, I think the same thing with superstars. I mean, if I always say, if you want to know someone's a superstar, imagine them going into a room and it's a club and there's like a microphone and they're like, oh, I'm not going to sing tonight. They're playing it cool. But then other artists start to sing. If they're like playing it cool, they're not probably in the mode of being a superstar. Either they've already become it or they're not on the way up. 
they need to dominate every room that they go into. And very similar to basketball. You could put you could put anybody in a pickup game. And you put Kobe Bryant in a pickup game. He's not just going to let you just play with Kobe Bryant. He's so going to mess you up. I used to believe in this theory, especially with the All-Star game. When the All-Star game mattered, it was a great way you watch the game unfold and eventually there's alpha dogs on both sides because that's just how basketball works. Mm -hmm. Now they don't play, two things happen. One, they don't play as hard. And two, there's been that kind of Kobe slash Westbrook. I'm just shooting every time, but I don't know if that necessarily means you're the alpha dog or just the ball And also guys don't want to get hurt. There's a lot of money Guys don't want to get hurt. So Westbrook's playing 15% harder than everybody else. (laughs) I don't know if that makes him the alpha dog, but I'm with you. Like basketball, the Olympics are good for this. Dude, the, the Michael Jordan, this? Magic Johnson secret game. Oh, yeah. But the, the 2000, 2008 Olympics, when, where were they, in Greece? And Spain is kind of coming at them. And it's this weird, they're between two generations. And at some point, somebody had to, like, take over the game. I think it was Chris Paul. Well, it became the Kobe. Next, no, the next, that was 2012. The next one. 2012, Chris Paul took over that game when they needed 2008, it. it was Kobe. It was Kobe, right. What's weird is it was never LeBron. In either of those situations. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in 08, Kobe's like, I got yeah. this. And everybody's like, thank God Kobe's got this, you know? No, it, and in 12, it was Chris thing. Paul in London. Yeah, Chris Paul in London. Game. I remember he like took over. He kind of got to a place where he was like, this isn't going down like this. I got I'm, this. I'm, I'm taking over this game. Yeah, there needs to be an I got this guy. So yeah, with music, I can only imagine. I'm a Knicks fan growing up. We, we, we were in use when I got this guy. We need well, one. You've, you've needed yeah. it. I got this yeah. guy. Now for I decades. got this guy. Just tore his ACL. Poor guy. <laughs> we lost our unicorn for the season. You know, it was a great one when uh, the one of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fames when Prince came in. Remember that one? They're all playing mm-hmm. guitar, and then Prince came in. Is like, oh, fuck you guys. And just like blew everybody, <laughs> blew everybody off the stage. I think it's tougher though with where music is now, where everybody's kind of an individual. You know, it's hard if you. No, play, you like, still see the killer instinct. I mean, here's the thing: it's very different because music is. As much as you need the killer instinct, like you learn from the Michael Jordan years when when Phil started sitting him in the third quarter, yeah. that you have to develop the other players to win a championship. You got to have to have everyone has to have confidence in their ability when their time comes, and it's a team sport. And the same thing is music. Music's very collaborative. You need to kind of everyone, but there still is that killer instinct in everything in life that goes a long way. It's yeah. but at the same time, it can help you. It can also destroy you because if you really believe it's all you you don't win championships. You know, if if you have the killer instinct, but you're able to lift up everyone around you while doing it, because that was the thing that made Michael so great, you know, towards the end of his career and all those championships, he got to a place where he figured that out. Before it was, I'm going to score 60, you know, 60 points on Larry and lose. I have to dominate you. Yeah. yeah. But he would lose. Yeah. And then it got to a point of like, I'm going to, I'm still going to be Michael, but everyone on this court is accountable to the same effort and work that I'm putting in. And I'm going to lift everybody up with you. And then turn it on when you Yeah, and then you six championships. Yeah. With and, the- and so, and and by the way, no one talks about the fact that Scottie Pippen also like basically averaged a, a triple-double almost. Well, or that Scottie Pippen was an MVP that candidate that one year Jordan sat Jordan out. Jordan sat out and he had like basically almost a triple-double yeah, that I season. Like- he was awesome and lost to the Knicks in game seven. I preached to the choir of Pippen. S- He's S- one, of my, one of my historical guys. I agree. Pippen, Pippen it is, is funny now. I've noticed, and I know this is a cranky old guy thing, but like, especially like at the ringer, like we have a lot of younger people, like two of them are in the room right now. 
And although these two are bad examples because they actually understand basketball history, but they, there is a sense like people, I, I can feel it with the under thirties where their basketball history kind of starts with Kobe mm-hmm. and like Kobe and Shaq. It's like the first thing they can remember. And that, and there's this whole generation of fans now who just weren't there for Jordan, much less. Same way I wasn't there for Julius Irving. Right. I didn't really know anything about Julius. I wasn't Irving. there for Bill Russell, so I yeah. had to just kind of trust the stories. Yeah, the Bernard, Bernard King story is always one of my favorites, and I wasn't there for that. The return when he oh, came back into the game, because like, as a Knicks fan, you heard that lore. But I, I mean, well, that was one of my the '84 Celts went against Bernard, and it was basically just Bernard and a bunch of not scrubs, but none of them were all stars or anything. And the Celtics had this five Hall of Famers. And Bernard, and Bernard just went toe to toe with them. He took a, him to a game that seven. Season, he it was, was unbelievable. Was I was the only New York season. guy. The only two New York athletes I've ever rooted for were him and Doc Gooden. Doc Gooden. I just got caught up in it. And, and Doc the, Gooden was in the mid eighties. It was like just otherworldly. There was nobody <laughs> like him. You know, it was like 16, 17 strikeouts. Um, where do you see music going? What's next? Look, I think you'll see a resurgence of rock. Um, so rock bands you think are coming back? I think rock bands will How come back. How about socially conscious music? Uh, I'm hoping so. Who's I, who's our best bet? Because Kendrick kind of already put out the album before the election even happened, which if he had just held it a year, it would have been like, oh, that album's about the I don't election. know who our best bet is. It might be songs, it might be a movement. I, I just don't believe in one artist starting a movement. That's what I learned in Atlanta. It never is one artist. It's a group of artists coming together and being collaborative and moving the needle together. Um and I think that maybe it's a we we are the world type situation. Maybe you have to get together like thirty of these. Maybe people. I should put them all together in a room. Yeah, get them in a room. Do some. You know what I what I'm hoping for? Trump. I want people to be socially conscious, but I don't even want the artist versus Trump thing. I just want people to start understanding the same people they're yelling at are the people they're claiming to help. You know, that's right. what that's the big thing. Like we keep talking about fight, 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 but who the hell are we fighting each other? And I'm just very frustrated by this. Like I got asked a question in Billboard a couple weeks ago. And they said, what was the biggest story in our industry last year? And my response was, I don't really care. We're not that important compared to what's actually going on. Yeah. And, you know, my my hope is that, you know, artists who are actually willing to educate themselves speak up. And other ones, I don't want them to use their platform. If you're in your own world and you're not actually socially conscious, you can do more harm than good. And I'd rather you just stay quiet. Um, but I think what's next for music is... I think we're going to see a lot of new things be discovered because the gatekeepers are getting taken away even more and more things are being discovered on streaming with this next generation. Do How worried should I be about the Logan Paul, Jake Paul type of music? Because unfortunately I my kids... I wouldn't be worried. Somebody asked me if... I wouldn't be worried because that is... You know, abuse of your platform is... is uh, it can only last so long. And, and unfortunately, he's a young guy and... Him and his brother are are learning that the hard way. And I don't wish bad on anybody. I hope they figure it out. But at the end of the day, you can't um, can't be so disrespectful and keep thinking it's funny. My fear is that my kids, somebody asked me, will my kids remember Logan and Jake Paul like kids in the late 80s remember the Beastie Boys where they know all the songs and like, 15 years from now, they're at a party and somebody starts so. singing a Logan Paul song and they know all the words. And I'm like, God, I, not only do I not hope that happens, but I'm willing to do whatever brainwashing it takes <laughs> to eliminate the, those people from their brains. 
But unfortunately, like that, that is where people are getting a lot of music and it has good outcomes. Like Justin Bieber, that's how people found him, YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some not so great stuff. I, listen, I, I'm constantly worried about my two sons being dicks because they're growing up in a very different lifestyle than, than I did and especially the generation before me. Yeah. Um, and the best someone told me, they're like, as long as you're concerned about it, probably it's going to work itself out. How so, old are your sons? Uh, my sons are three and one. Oh, so you, you have a long way to go before you start having the philosophical parent questions about language and songs. Yeah. My wife's the founder of Fuck Cancer, so I think that's going to work itself out. <laughs> <laughs> my attitude is my my kids can can hear the words, but I don't want them singing along. Like, they know how to self-edit when the, whatever bad word comes up. Yeah. No, I, I, that was the way I kind of grew up. Yeah. I don't want to hear them in my backseat, like dropping F-bombs. And- well, you know what you could tell them? As soon as they start, you can say, who sings this song? And then they'll tell you, and then you can respond with, let's keep it that way. That's usually that's my That's a res- good one. That's the one I tell people when I don't like them singing songs. I go, who sings this? They say it, and I go, cool, let's keep it that way. Do you know my <laughs> connection with Kanye and my daughter? <coughs> my daughter plays club soccer, and- has played for like five years, but when we drove to tournaments, because in California, you're just driving around everywhere, she would have a playlist to get like fired up for whatever the game was or mm-hmm. whatever. And from like age eight, it was it was just pretty much all Kanye. <laughs> and, you know, we're pulling up in these parking lots <laughs> and it'll be like halfway through runaway. And we pull up in this, you know, there's some minivan next to us and people are kind of looking at our car. I'm like, oh shit. And I'm like turning it down. But um, I think it's crazy. Meanwhile, if you kept it up, they'd be like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's crazy that somebody can make music like that, that can touch everybody. You know, like I don't think I'm in the Kanye wheelhouse, really. I'm a guy in my mid forties and I have a daughter who's now 12, but, um, but I think that's, I think history is going to remember him. Yeah, I, I, I personally, and I'm very biased because I'm close to them. I think he's a living icon. Like, I think he's he's one of those people that after death will be remembered for a long time. And he's living right now. Do you agree with what I said about him? That I think, I think Kanye is a genius, but the problem is he knows that. Um, I, I see it very differently. Okay. I don't see it as a problem that he knows that because I get to have the real conversations with him in a way other people might never get to have. Yeah. And the way I look at it is so many of us, like it's like looking at a painting and um, you're, if you're stare, if you're too close to the painting, you might see a couple of rough strokes and be like, I don't get it. And I think with Kanye, when it's all said and done, we're going to be able to step back and realize there was everything he does is art. Yeah. And He's fighting for that. So How many years away are we from that? I think some of us see it now, and that's why we fight so vehemently as fans of his. Um, I see it now. I just don't fight. Maybe <laughs> well, I should fight more. Well, I think you're on a Do podcast talk about him a lot, so you're fighting. So uh, I think I think he's. I, I think history will prove exactly who he is. Would, when was the last honest conversation he had with somebody publicly? Like, would Me? he ever come on this podcast? You'd have to uh, ask him. But does he do stuff like that? Does he care? Does he care yeah, I think, to I even think. have a conversation? When he when he wants to have a conversation, yeah. But I think, you know, it's we have honest conversations all the time. 
Um, I just think he uh, he lives by his convictions and he makes his own decisions and he might do this, he might not do this. Like it's just kind of up to him. Give me two predictions of people who are on the horizon that you are not involved with in any way that you're just. Why kind would of I do that? Of. Let me only tell you who I'm involved with. <laughs> um, Greta Van Fleet is a new band that I'm not involved with that I think is on on the rise. Um, the Spencer Lee band. Oh, you uh, mentioned those. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm invent. I'm involved, and I said it anyway because you have to listen to just two of the songs that are out, and you'll be like, "Holy shit!" I'll play them for you before I leave. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of great new artists. It's we'll see what happens right, over the next year. That question. Um, <laughs> best NBA rapper. Best NBA rapper. Would you sign an NBA rapper? Um. Well, no, because they can't tour. They're they're playing in the NBA all the time. Um. Well, they could tour during the summer. Yeah, maybe. Do a little two-month tour. Yeah, maybe a two-month tour. Or in Damian uh, Lillard's case, it could Dave, be like a six-month tour. Damian Lillard's good. They usually don't Damian make the Lillard's good. Yeah, he's year. good. Damian Lillard is Is he good. the best one right now? I don't know. You know what? I haven't... I'm not going to lie to you. I haven't really dived into the NBA rap scene. That's bullshit. No, I, re- I know. You I need even, to. You said you love basketball. I love Those basketball. Those are your two worlds colliding. Been, I understand. And, and I, need to, I need to dive into the NBA rap scene. I've been too busy actually watching them play basketball. <laughs> um... Can I tell you one of my favorite teams to watch in the NBA, though? Please. The Miami Heat. They're you know, weird. It's a weird team. You know why? A lot of weird players. All heart. Pick up, pick up team, everybody tries hard. Everybody plays hard, and yeah. they're capable of beating anybody on any given night. It's one of many teams that could beat the Celtics in round one. It, it's, it, they're a team that plays hard every single night. They play together. They seem to like each other. <laughs> they're, they shouldn't be good. And... Uh, I just, I fell in love with them last year when they were chasing to try and get into the playoffs and they got that one game away. They won and then the other team won so they didn't get in. Yeah. And I think they would have beaten the Celtics. And it's, it's, they're just one of those teams that, uh, they're, they're fun to watch because they remind me of a less talented Pistons with like Chauncey and, and Rip. Cause Chauncey like a poor and, man's 04 Pistons. Yeah. It was like, it was a, it was an amazing championship Pistons team. Yeah. But they were good because they played incredibly well together against a bunch of guys who were better and more talented than them, but they played as a team. Like that was a great team basketball to watch. And the Heat are even less talented. Yeah. Uh, and I'm actually, I'm happy if the D-Wade gets to retire there. I think that's a nice thing. I think he retired three years ago. He's just still getting paid. <laughs> Disappointing career, <coughs> D Wade. I have a lot of Tommy. Tommy over there has some tormented D Wade thoughts. He went to the Bulls for twenty four million a year. He did what he had to do. He did what he had to do. <laughs> so what's next for you? Um, you know, I I, I taken Chris Paul's advice. I think I'm going to try out next year for the league. Celebrity league? Uh, no, celebrity no, 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 no. The real league. The real I'm league. Gonna, I'm going to try and pull a Master P. Could you uh, be Kyle Korver? Uh, in a three point contest? Yeah. Any given day, you never know with shooters, right? Why don't what, you just show up at these gyms and bet these guys on shooting contests? What do you think All I, they want to do is the way, bet white guys on shooting contests. What do you think Jermaine Dupri used to do with me back in the day to make money? He used to literally have rappers come to work in the studio. So you're like, white men can't jump. And he would bring me in like Woody Harrelson. Yeah. And I, I would wear like cargo shorts <laughs> and and just take money all. I need more playing basketball at the Sosa Def Gym than I probably did in my salary. What was your What's your game like? Who's, I'm just a shooter. Well, but give me a c- comparison, NBA comparison. My favorite player growing up was Mark Price. 
Ah, oh, one of my favorites. Mark Price was my guy. He killed the Celtics in 1992. It, it, Mark we Price, would have been up 3-1 in the series. Mark Price, was, he, just he, had a, he had a, a lightning quick release. He was Nash before Nash. He yeah. hurt his knee. Yeah. yeah. And so I, um, I, I've always, I'm a shooter. I'm a guy like really like an AAU basketball. Like there, yeah. I was the guy I go in as, as a three-point specialist. And that was always my game. I Like if I make a layup, it's a miracle. Because I'm even attempting late. It's I don't amazing do that. the Cavs didn't sign you. They love aging three point specialists. Yeah, They've it's like gotten a whole bunch. I, of I had a lot of you know watching the Mark Prices, the Steve Kerr's, like little white guys who shot threes. That made me feel real good about myself. Does Kanye have a game or no? Kanye can. Uh, Kanye's an athlete, so he like and he loves basketball. He loves playing. What is Justin, it? What is Justin, his pickup Justin style? plays. Uh, you know who's the best I've ever played against in the, in the entertainment business? Who? Ali from the Saint Lunatics. Ali, Nelly's guy, Ali from the St. Lunatics is like 6'5", 6'4", 6'5". He was all city St. Louis. Wow. And he can play. He can really play. And I used to play, well, Lou Williams used to, uh, and he was in high school, he was friends at Bow Wow. And he used to come over to the Soso Def Gym and play with us all the time. So I've known him since he was 17. Who else? Give me more. Jay Will and I grew up together, like playing against each other in no, team I mean, camps. I meant like mu- musician Oh, people. musicians who can play. Um uh, I play with Adam Levine a bunch. We have games at, at Adam's house. Adam's a pure Does he lefty. Have one of those like fear. He's a lefty. Full. He he loves going like hard to the hole with the left hand. Um, who's that's such an advantage for pickup. Yeah, because <laughs> people get tired, they just forget you're lefty. <coughs> um, I'm trying to think who else is good. Titty boy. Uh, Common can play. Oh yeah, Common can play. I uh, he had I love that you called him moments. Titty Boy and not Two Chains. That's how I know him. I know him from the ludicrous, you know, yeah. days. Is Titty Boy? DTP. Yeah. Yep, DTP. He could play. Um, but I'm telling you, the best was uh, Ali from the St. Lunatics. Ali from the St. Lunatics could shoot. He could play. He was really, really, really good. Is there is there any Jay Z basketball? Is I've never played with Jay. So he I probably doesn't, right? I mean, I have unless no idea. he's great, there's nothing for him to win with. That. I, I've yeah, I guess I've literally never played with him before. Do you think title works? I got invited to the White House to play with Obama. Got so excited, showed up, and he wasn't in the game. Oh! (laughs) I was like, what is it? Like, literally, I was was hyped for, like, the whole day. I was in D.C., like, I went over there, and he wasn't there. (laughs) This was kind of a letdown. Do you you think title and that whole philosophy and that whole practice of this is the only place to hear our music is a good idea? Um, no, I think, look, I, I don't think exclusivity works in music. I don't think I th- it does. I, I, I think that, uh, that's why Spotify has become the biggest because they don't care about exclusivity. They just care about giving the best platform yeah. and Apple kind of did the same thing. And, you know, I think, um, music can be ripped too easily. So you just gotta, you know, give the best place for self-discovery and give that same feeling when you went into a vinyl store or a track or whatever, you know, it was, or I found a mixtape. We felt this feeling of self-discovery that when that artist blew up, we felt like we owned them and we were there forever. Yeah. And I think whichever platforms provide that the wins, it's not about having the biggest artist with the exclusive album. It's about where, where am I going to find what I fall in love with and make my own? You know, the NBA, even though they have nothing in common in this respect, they actually do because the NBA was always like, here's our stuff. Use it the way you want. Oh, you want to cut the Giannis's best dunks of the year? We're not going to take it down. They kind of try to celebrate the game and they let the users celebrate the game with them. And it worked. And Mm -hmm. you think like basketball Twitter every night is like an event in itself. And anytime something happens, you can find it on Twitter in five seconds. Yep. Whereas football, it's like 
coming down, coming down, take that down, take this down. Oh, we don't like this. And uh, I, I think the inclusiveness of, of what basketball is doing and what seems to be working in music seems to be some parallels. I think there's a lot of parallels. I think at the end of the day, the user is the one who's providing all the revenue anyway. So if you try to cut them off from being a creator, you lose. Well, how many um, P, how many views is Despacito up to? A lot, and we Did just crossed, we just crossed a billion streams on Spotify. So, a billion streams, and it's like how many on YouTube? Like oh, I haven't even looked. It's, it's massive. It's over a billion. I yeah, think. yeah, it's massive. I mean, it's. Do you remember when you first heard that song? Yeah, they sent it to me uh, to remix it with other artists, not Justin. And I cut a deal for my company to own the remix, and I would handle putting together a remix. And then um, Justin was in South America, and he heard the song. And he's like, man, girls are going crazy for this. I said, well, I have the remix rights. If you want to do it, I won't, you have to do it this week. And we like talked about it. I sent Pooh Bear, a writer that we managed, in to write the English part. Um, Justin said, I'm going to do it in Spanish. And I said, great, that's what I think so too. We talked about it. I said, it'd be good for the Latin market. He sends it back to me. It sounds great. I'm really excited. I send it in. Uh, the radio guys call. The label calls. Luis Fonzi himself reaches out. We want Justin to do it. In English, we were hoping this would be an English version that we can get played on English radio. And I said, we're not doing that. And you I said, will... don't you remember what happened with Nina and 99 Luft Balloons? Well, first, you Same know what thing. I did say? What I, what I said is I did Gangnam Style with Sai. And I said, if I can get a song in Korean all over the radio, I can get a song in Spanish. Okay, yeah, that's a good, good one. And, and then I also, um, I said, it's really important we keep this in Spanish. And they said, well, and I said, look, I'm putting it on me. We're going to work it. My guy, Mike Chester in my office, like we're going to work it with you and, and we're going to break this with you. And if I'm wrong, we'll do it in English, but I'm not wrong. We're doing it in Spanish. And I said, we have a responsibility to do this in Spanish because I felt like over the last year, there's so many American citizens who speak that language in yeah. their home and they felt less than. And I wanted to get a number one on the radio that they could hear their native tongue and feel appreciated. And I was hoping to get it to number one for a week. I didn't expect it to go 16 weeks, but it was pretty awesome. You said, three days from now, I'm going to call you back with four 12-year-old girls who have never heard this song before, and I want you to hear their reactions. And they're going to lose their fucking minds. Once it went, it was there was no stopping it. It was just making people understand. I literally had to curse on one phone call and say, it's not changing to fucking English. Stop asking me. I always, I mean, I always find out with pop music belatedly from my kids in the car when they tell me to put something on. And that one I knew right away. I heard like a minute and a half of it. I was like, oh my God, this, yeah, this song's fun. a monster. How do you make money from a song like that though? Other than that, like. I mean, you get paid for every stream. Yeah, but explain that to me. How do you chase it down? Well, we have companies that do that for you. They're chasing down Spotify, Apple. The reason you sign with a major and a major publisher is their responsibility is to chase down the money and pay you. They How have confident me. are you that you're getting all the money? I audit. So yeah, that's how I'm confident. I audit and make sure that I get all the money. <laughs> so is it safe to say that song made a ridiculous amount of money? The song did very well. Did very well? Yeah, it did very well. Like when very you, well? Like can you buy the New Orleans Pelicans? Um, I don't know. Throw your hat I'm, in the ring right now. Let's um, make some news. I, you know what? I, I, uh, I'm good on owning an NBA team if I live in Los Angeles because... I don't want to fly all the way to New Orleans. Okay, so and, so the Lakers when that final. And, and I don't think part. Despacito made me that much money. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, maybe. Uh, you know what? Be minority owner. I got I got offered to do that a couple of years ago, and I almost did it. The and Hawks my, and uh, yeah, the Hawks. They wanted me to do it. Guy Todd Foreman. Yeah. Um, and he convinced me to do it, and I was thinking about doing it. And my best friend, 
uh, is the CEO of the Miami Heat, and he convinced me not to do it. And I would have doubled my money in the sale. So he was wrong. You're basically basically buying season tickets and hoping it doubles. I I, I bought floor seats for the Clippers. My wife got them for me as my birthday present. It's my best, like, it's my happy place. Mm. And I got them because CP3 was on the team and we were very close friends. And then he called to tell me he was leaving, going to the Rockets. He said, I can't stay in Blake Griffin anymore. I have to go. That is not what he said it. You know, I cannot stand this guy. Listen, he's driving me crazy. I promise you, anyone who thinks that is giving way too much credit to to everybody else. I think he made a decision to go play with. Oh, that's kind of insulting in its own. No, no, I don't think it's. it's, I I just think they're trying to make drama out of something that wasn't drama. He wanted to go play with Harden and and Trevor, and you know, he saw an opportunity, and he feels like it's his old AU team, like the way the energy is. Yeah, and he's having a blast. But for me, it sucked because it was fun seeing my friend out there every single game when I went. Um, when but, I have Austin Rivers still, uh, you know we have Milos. Milos is great. Milos is my favorite. Milos, there's a lot of rumors. and I love Patrick Beverly because my wife and I just built a school in the Watts with the help of Patrick Beverly. Oh wow! Uh, we built a, a a park. There was public school in the Watts um, that needed a playground and everything else. And my wife for her birthday wanted to sponsor it. And Patrick Beverly saw it on my Instagram. And went to the Clippers and said, we should team up with them. And we put up 50% and they put up 50%. We rebuilt this entire school park. Wow. Um, so I love him now. But Milos is my favorite because I watched the preseason game with the Clippers when they were in Hawaii. And it's Milos's first game ever as an NBA professional. And they're like, after all the years becoming a legend in Europe, you know, how did it feel? And you played so well and you had so many assists and a couple. And it was a friendly exhibition, like, yeah. We talk about Killer Instinct. And Milos literally looks at them and he's like, I did not enjoy this game. We lost. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, but it's a friendly exhibition. He goes, I played a win. And like just Milos. dead serious. Milos looks like a guy who smokes a pack of cigarettes right before the game. I was going to say, there's a walks, lot of rumors about him with cigarettes. Yeah, and just walks out there and yeah. goes, I don't give two shit. Like he's a zero fucks kind of guy, but he wants to win. And I, I just love Milos. I think he's great. He's, he might be a halftime smoke break And I guy. love I love Lou because I've known Lou since he was 17. And he should have been an all-star this year. I don't understand why he settled with the contract he did. I would not have advised him on that one. I think yeah. I think he should have bet on himself this summer. But I, I was happy for the Clippers that they locked him down for three years. Mm-hmm. Some people just like to get locked down. I guess. <laughs> Scooter Braun. Good times. Last thing I wanted to ask you about... Um, Arena security, obviously you've had some experience with this. What? How do we get safer? I've heard different solutions, ideas for this, your experiences with this. What do you think? So um, for anyone listening who doesn't know, the reason you're asking me is because I'm Ariana Grande's manager and her show in Manchester was the uh, terrorist attack. Um, the thing I learned from that show is that we can put in as many measures as we want, but if someone is living that kind of evil... Um, and they are willing to kill themselves, they're going to kill people. Um, that person waited out um, outside of the arena for the show to end in a pickup area and waited till they were surrounded by as many children as possible. Looked those children in the eyes who had smiles on their faces and it just enjoyed an Ariana Grande show. You know, I, I hate to say this, but your daughter's 12. That, yeah. you know, 12-year-olds. There's yeah. an 11-year-old girl who died that day. And... That person looked them in the eye and said, there's enough of them around me now. I'm going to do this. So what I think we can do is, you know, keep, you know, sharing information as much as possible. 
because that's how our intelligence agencies find stuff out and avoid crisis. But that kind of prevention is the only real prevention. You can put as many measures as you want, but that kind of evil you can't stop. And the best thing we can do to stop it is to make it so that it doesn't live up to their agenda. And that's actually why we did the One Love Manchester concert two weeks later in Manchester. Yeah. Because I just felt very strongly and I put a lot of pressure on Ariana and it was unfair of me to do it. But she's tough as nails and she stepped up and she and the city of Manchester are my heroes now. You know, I felt like if their goal is to scare us from our way of life, the best thing we can do for security is not change our way of life when these tragedies happen and answer them with defiance and courage and say, basically, fuck you. We're going to keep living our lives as as a responsibility to those that were lost. Um, because you can put all kinds of venue security in place, but they'll wait in the parking lot across the street. Or, you know, they'll wait at a kid's baseball game and not a professional baseball game. Or they'll they'll do all kinds of stuff because these people really believe in this evil agenda. Yeah. But if you if you take away, if they say, look, the last time we did that, it backlashed on us. They got stronger. And two weeks later, they're in a concert, 60,000 strong, saying we're not changing a damn thing. They're going to think twice before they blow themselves up at a concert. So I think, you know, we, we have to just uh, be resolute and strong and, and defiant. And that's the best way to, to deter violence. My friend Nathan Hubbard thinks that one of the big problems here is that tickets are just kind of these things that just kind of happen and you don't know, you can't trace them. You don't know where they end up and all that stuff. And the thing about the terrorist at our show didn't have a ticket. Right. He was just outside. He, just, he waited. Yeah. You know, he, he saw the security checkpoints. He saw everything. He goes, I'm going to wait 20 feet outside of the security checkpoint because they're going to have to leave and go to, go to the train but station. But the bigger fear would be that this happened inside a stadium with even more people, right? I mean, he killed a lot of people. You know, he killed... If the size of that bomb, whether it was in the stadium or out, he killed as many people as he possibly could. Yeah. Um, the The funny part is probably the safest place was in the arena. Um, Interesting. But the uh, like I said, it's. Do you see a future a with tickets though, where we're going to be able to? I hope know so. Every, you know, it almost be like buying an airline ticket, where we know who has the airline ticket that they're actually using it. You can't transfer it. I think that's probably where this is going five, six years I, you know, from now. I, I'm hoping so. I think a lot of the reason why we haven't seen that is because selling out shows is based on hype. Yeah. Um, a lot of times. So artists won't mind scalpers scooping up a bunch of tickets because they want to say I sold out in a couple of minutes. Well, knowing they, they that, tip them off and they yeah, the scalpers go crazy and everything else and it creates a hype for the show. I mean, people don't know this about Michael Jackson, but you know his original managers used to pay, pay women to be at the airport screaming for him. And after paying them like five or six times, women just started showing up screaming for them because that's what you know people and fans thought they were supposed to do. Yeah. Um, and with with hype, when you hear, oh, that show sold out in minutes, you want to be in that show, whether you know what that show is or not. And I think that's why we haven't seen, because technology could easily stop scalping. Yeah. But I don't think we want that yet. Nathan's written about that for The Ringer. It's really not that hard to it's completely not that hard change at all, it. But- but the, the scalpers don't want it, and some of the ticket agencies don't want it. And and the people throwing the shows. Yeah. They like saying, I sold out in two minutes. Yeah. Scooter Brown, this is a lot fun. of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Let me know How's when you're buying NBA team. How's your jump shot? Mind you, I had a nice resurgence a couple of years ago as a, as a stretch, stretch three. 
Oh, so you're like a slasher or like a no, I'm, I was done. I was, I was like, you turn 40 and you lose like one thing every year. How tall are you? I'm six, one and a half. I've, I've never heard six, one and a half described as a stretch three. Well, that's the way till you get to 43. Yeah. But I'm saying like, that's like, I would consider that. I think your stretch three is different than mine. I would think of you as a shooting two who likes to go to the corner on the fast break. Yeah. But I didn't used to play like that. That was the bummer. Yeah. But then 40 old. comes. Yeah. You don't get hurt. But you know, and when, uh, I got into a screaming match in my pickup game on Saturday not because of wanting to get hurt. Right. I got into a screaming match because we got this kid who always comes, who he's probably going to hear this and be like, yeah, that's me. And we have a great <laughs> game. Like everyone can play. There's yeah. all different levels, but everybody's like a good guy. It's not even winner stay on. It's winner stay on unless there's too many guys and then winner shoot to stay on. Like it's like, it's a good energy and everyone's there to play and not get hurt, not get into a fight. And this one guy loves to throw elbows and he loves to call everything but if you make a call, he likes to talk shit, even if he's not covering you. That's the number one sin. Yeah. And, and it, you know, everyone. Like Carmelo was like that for a few years and pick up. Yeah. Well, this guy was annoying. Call annoying. fouls on everybody. And usually it takes like six games before someone says anything. I show up at the gym and I'm like the 12th guy. So like they're starting the first game. I got next. And me and my buddy are talking. My buddy, Graham Bunn, who uh, is the morning country morning show uh, host here in LA, who used to be a serious ball player and played overseas. Yeah. And we're talking about this guy. And he's like, yeah, I remember playing with him a couple weeks ago. It's frustrating. We go in the game. We're three points into the first game. This is 7.30 in the morning on a Saturday. And I shoot a three and a guy snake bites me. I call it. The guy's like, my bad. He knows he fouled me. It was like an aggressive yeah. snake bite. And this guy starts saying, oh, it's a bitch call. Blah, blah. I don't even let him get another sentence out. I brought my two boys to the gym that morning. They're in the corner. I think like my brother, someone's watching them. I for, I zone. I literally saw red. I forget my sons are behind me, and I start screaming at this guy at the top of my lungs. You know what? I'm tired of your fucking mouth every fucking time I come here. Well, I cursing like a sailor. Like tell him I was like, it's not going down. Like I'm not waiting six games here and your bullshit. It ends right now. We got a fucking problem. Like I'm ready to fight, which my lawyer would not be happy about. Yeah. And to his credit, he just stopped talking. And the rest of the game, he stopped talking. I went up to him later. I'm like, let's hug it out. And I made him hug me and then everything else. But I lost my goddamn mind because I'm at an age now at 36 where I'm not fighting on a basketball court to be competitive. I'm fighting to keep you in a happy place. Yeah. That's the difference when you get old. When you're younger and you're 21 playing pickup, you're fighting because you want that bravado and you want to kill somebody and you want to go out there. When you're 36 and in your 40s, all you want to do is have a nice game without a twisted ankle. And if anyone threatens that, you are willing to kill them. <laughs> I had Jacoby and I were going for two years to USC and playing with the USC kids. And I, I was like 41, 42. And it was, I, I, I just thought it was dead for me. And it, it's still the most fun on the planet. The three hour run is still yeah. my number one thing. I've never really fully been able to replace it. It's something like has been part of my life off and on since I was, I don't know, 14. And there's nothing like it. Like golf is just not as good. Tennis no. is not as good. There's nothing like trying to stay in the court and making friends with all these people you'd never be friends with anyway. And the bonding that goes in and just like pushing for one more game. And yep. this is the game I'm going to get hurt. And when, and I shouldn't when that, play. When that basket turns into an ocean. Yeah. When you get, the, when you get the that rhythm. Best. When you get three or four going down in a row and you get a real good rhythm and you, you know, they expect you to shoot and you throw a dime. And, and you feel real good about it. And, you know, you finish. 
there, there's nothing like pickup. I was going to take HGH to keep going. And I did all these research. <laughs> it really was because my body was starting to break down and I could feel it. And I was like a half step slow um, from where I was before, but it just the reactions were, and I was just like, the only way I keep going is PEDs. And I did all the research and I'm like, this would be a funny story. Like, I'll take HGH to like help my, but then I did all the research and you, and HGH is kind of scary. Like what? if you have any cancer in your body, it it can bring it out potentially. And there are all these side effects. I was like, I'm out. This is when, crazy. When was the last time you played pickup? Uh, the 2014 finals in um, Miami. Cause the year before we had arranged all these NBA games. And, and how much year, work do you have to do this weekend? Huh? How much work do you have to do? No, this I can't. I'm, I'm, I'd have to, I'd have to rebuild my legs. It would take me three months to come back. What if I told you this is a game where you could? I'd, I'd need three months. I don't want to get hurt. You're not going to get hurt. I did your podcast. You have to come to my Saturday morning game this week. All right, and give me three weeks. Three weeks? Yeah, give me three weeks and I'll come. Okay, three weeks, you and me, Saturday morning. Okay. There That's we go. pretty early. All right. Scooter Brown, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to Scooter. Thanks to ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. My listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com. Slash BS. And if you haven't tried it for free yet, I'm beginning to take it personally. I've been telling you all year, 2018, try it out. Go check it out. ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Thanks to Gillette. Get Gillette Performance delivered to your door. No more getting mad at yourself because you just got back from the grocery store and you realized you forgot to buy blades. Nope. Just get it online. Subscribe today. Pick your favorite razor. Get every fourth order free. Visit Gillette online at GilletteOnDemand.com. The BS Podcast comes back one more time at the end of the week. I will see you then. I want to see them on a waste of